0: welcome back to Haunted History Chronicles. In pre-modern agricultural societies, non-humans were treated as conduits to the spiritual realm, a belief that frequently led to the ritual sacrifice of animals for means of protection or appeasement. In medieval years bodies of animals might be seen stuffed into walls, stairwells or chimneys to ward off evil spirits. Human societies frequently associated non-human animals with the natural world, and this association extended to include the supernatural as well. Animals have an intrinsic role in our lives and world, and also in spooky accounts of their amazing feats, as well as animals within ghost law too. Sadly, reports of such encounters are often less well known than human counterparts, and within the paranormal world a certain presumption all too often that what might be being experienced is a ghostly human one. In death, they can remain unremarkable, and especially so if they are animals further down the scale of human appreciation, a hierarchy that marginalises some animals entirely. Joining me today is Richard Sugg, author of A Singing Mouse at Buckingham Palace, and other amazing animal stories from the 19th century, in which he explores animal antics from all walks of life, from cats and dogs, mice, elephants, bears, baboons, tigers, kangaroos and more. Extraordinary feats that continue to baffle, Bewilder modern scientists. Hi Richard, thank you so much for joining me again today.
1: Many thanks. It's a fascinating, uh, infinitely mind baffling subject uh, animals and the paranormal. So uh, yeah, it's been great going back over this and these amazing stories.
0: Animals really do kind of play a very intrinsic part of our life, I think. And and when we look at their role in our past, equally so, they they've really been at the heart of so much of our lives, culture, premonitions, stories, superstitions, um, folklore. So many, so many different things, omens, all manner of of different aspects, and you know, if we really kind of start from there, just seeing how in these pre-modern societies, they were kind of treated as this conduit to the spiritual realm, if you like, you know, this belief that if they were sacrificed, it might mean that they were protected, or somehow the gods were appeased in, in whatever manner, and good things would then come on those that were carrying out the sacrifice. You know, jump forward to medieval years, and we've got so many accounts of animals being stuffed into walls or chimneys or in stairwells to ward off witches and evil Mm. and all of these other things. And I know in your book, when you were writing about fairies, a dangerous history, you kind of touch on this, don't you? This idea of animals and the natural world being associated with the supernatural, with omens, with, with dark things. Do you want to just elaborate a little bit on that for those that haven't read that book or listened to that podcast about animals and that connection with the supernatural and and with fairies i mean one of the things that i'm thinking about in particular are examples of stories and accounts of things like the black dog
1: yeah the 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 black dog is an interesting one because you've got a range of witnesses uh some of it does sort of sound just like pure folklore but um there there was an educated witness whose brother was in a carriage you've got to be fairly wealthy to be in a carriage i suppose in most cases uh, a private one and yeah there was a dog a dog running alongside um are these are these ghost dogs or not There's uh, this is an account of one of these animals in a kind of friendly protective way walking walking a woman home across the countryside at night so, yeah, the, uh, the, the dog thing is, is one. The, uh, the, perhaps the most memorable is the ideas in Ireland that people's souls after death go into, go into seals and um, a period when, you know, seals were quite a big part of the economy on the coast and yet they stopped the seal hunting under the belief that one, uh, one of the seals had cried out that it was somebody's dead grandfather so, yeah, you get you get different versions of this. There are fairy animals as well. The fairies seem to kind of have everything humans had, and they had uh, lambs and cats and dogs with particular kind of red ears and so forth. And um, yeah, you had a fairy dog which uh, catalyzed a curfew in many houses when the fairy dog came in each evening you you all went to bed and left it to sit by the fire and eat up whatever food you put out for it
0: and when we look at kind of cultures around the world we really do see how animals really were part and are still part of many of these cultures i mean i was recently reading about the inugami in in western japan which Mm is this spirit dog and i mean it, it led to pretty dark practices with them cutting the head off of starving dogs to then bury it by a crossroads or in some cases burying a dog alive at a crossroads with its head sticking out to the top of the earth so that you know when people cross the path of this dog either alive or dead yeah. somehow it would then hold and retain the anger of, of being crossed in this way, of, of being walked past right, in this way, right. so that eventually, after it's kind of been inflamed with this with this hatred, somehow then that spirit would be unleashed, it would attach itself to someone or to a family. Mm. And from there you then get very strong evidence of, of poltergeist-type hauntings. And, right,
1: yeah. You know, there's,
0: there's lots when you look at animals and different yeah. cultures of this association somehow with animals being easily possessed or causing possession and you know leading to other types of possessions i mean it's a really kind of complex topic that when you start looking into it there are so many different examples which are really incredibly fascinating and the indigami was just one that for me was just mind-blowing yeah mind-blowing
1: that's an extraordinary one yeah
0: and you know we're going to be talking about your book today which very much is about animals and I suppose the question to start off with was what inspired you to write your book where did this one come from?
1: To be absolutely honest I was going through uh, 19th century mainly 19th century newspapers for all sorts of research um, particularly actually my books on the paranormal my first one uh, a century of supernatural stories and the way you get a big Uh, it was bigger pages in those days page set out the odds were you're going to get your eye caught by some amazing animal story so uh, being the kind of person who wants to keep bits of information I started noting these down separately and eventually I thought I've got so many of these crazy stories and I was learning a lot quite fast about say how much chance you've got you know in the middle of the countryside where you didn't travel more than about 20 miles and that not very often perhaps you've got a good chance of coming across uh, a lion a tiger a gorilla uh, an elephant a kangaroo because of all these traveling menageries you didn't have to go to the zoo you know the zoo went to you so the number of kind of escaped often quite wild often quite dangerous animals which were roaming about the uh British countryside is quite extraordinary and I uh, I thought yeah I'll um, I'll start more actively collecting these so I started doing that and I was just amazed by what I learned really uh, the the um, phrase I can't think of the chap's name now but one of the big animal scientists uh, summed it up as are we smart enough to know how smart animals are and the other thing that occurred to me I think if I was going to create my own cosmos, my own universe, I'd do it a lot better than this one in all sorts of ways. Uh, there would be no Tories, for one thing. There would probably be no billionaires. Uh, but Once you've got everything in place, you know, and you you put your infrastructure and decide, no, we don't really need a royal family costing us billions of pounds as well. Uh, The other thing that you'd need would be to make sure you've got animals. Why? Well, because animals bring people together. This really only struck me. I mean, I've been aware of it, I suppose, more subconsciously, every time you get talking to a dog owner because something to do with their dog, uh, you might be out in the summer and we'll see the ponies of travelers which is a lovely thing to see by the river here and people like to talk about that you know people who are just walking along singly a dog runs by them whatever that will get them talking uh so <laughs> there's so but countless conversations and there must be marriages in this i'm sure and all sorts of friendships just triggered and sparked by animals uh in in ordinary circumstances in uh in the parks uh, and the countryside and so forth people who get to know each other perhaps because they've both got dogs and so forth so yeah this was a big one that 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 struck me and yeah you learn about amazing animal abilities which can be explained biologically such as the singing mice which is a pretty epic journey and i've got a lot more singing uh, mice stories that came later didn't actually get in there uh, and then you eventually come to these stories as with railway jack the the railway dog of the uh 1870s and 80s in uh sussex and then you start to think, okay, this is not just ordinary cleverness, and this is not the sense of smell. Uh, and then you start following that trail, as it were, and um, you you come across stories which absolutely beggar belief, but are true. Uh, Bobby the Wonder Dog being the being the archetypal one, I suppose.
0: You know, the stories and the accounts are. I mean, there there is such a range, and some of them are just so heartwarming, so touching. And like you said, just make you question so many things that you thought you knew already, and you realise you just don't. <laughs> mm.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the yeah.
0: title of the book, um, "A Singing Mouse at Buckingham Palace." I mean, that in itself is is a really interesting story. Do you want to tell any tell the people listening? You know, the the account of the singing mice of Buckingham Palace because it's it's fascinating. So I know I can see why that was kind of why you titled the book because it's so intriguing
1: yeah yeah it's it's a lovely one uh it it really is a kind of rags to riches story apart from anything else uh in so far as a couple living in what i think was a pretty much a slum dwelling in london heard an odd noise uh which they thought was a bird that had got trapped in the in the flat uh, and presently they traced it to a mouse which was singing now at this point in the 1830s uh singing mice were unheard of but this mouse sang so well and was heard i seem to remember by a journalist from the times who was quite impressed with it watched it quite closely and listened to it and presently it got so famous after being in uh, a public display where people paid to go and hear it, and I think it was Regent Street, that Queen Victoria asked for it to come to the palace and sing for a couple of her children. This was eighteen forty-three, so she'd been queen for a few years, and yeah, the the mouse apparently got stage struck or sort of awed by royalty. I'm not sure, but seemed to make up for it eventually, and and did its singing. And once you've got this kicking it off, suddenly everybody's finding these singing mice uh they're they're sold for huge amounts of money i think you pay 10 pounds for one which gives you some idea you know you, you get a newfoundland dog and change for that i think at the time so yeah um the story runs and runs with endless kind of mice on display and mice being found and mice singing to the piano uh down to the uh golden era where Walt Disney finds himself asked to judge the transatlantic singing mouse competition uh, between Canada, Britain and America. And uh, you have, a, in a perhaps rare example of cross-border cooperation, uh, a Welsh mouse and an English mouse singing a duet for the for the British entry. Um, the, the real holy grail of all that, um, this was in the 1930s, is the actual recording. There is actually a recording. The BBC as usual, managed to lose it, but NBC still got it, and you then got to go to the tender mercies of, I think it's the Library of Congress, who never answer you in America, say, could we have a listen to this recording? The point being that the competition was judged by listener votes. Uh, you don't have to be you know, Einstein to work out that listener votes are going to mean America's going to win because there's lots more Americans than anybody else. So America did win. There was all sorts of different opinions in the press about how the mice performed and were the British ones any good anyway and uh, so forth but yeah it was on the radio um, and uh, and has been preserved for posterity and certainly you get uh, accounts by naturalists as American naturalist of the 19th late 19th century who had uh, a singing mouse and he would watch it singing for up to 10 minutes it would race about incredibly fast so that the whole kind of gymnastics should have made it breathless and it would just keep singing with this extraordinary kind of virtuosity. And he actually scored down a couple of songs uh from the mouse one called the wheel song because it would have to run on its wheel and and sing and i've showed these to a, a professional musician friend of mine matthew Nisbet, played at clyndebourne and all sorts of places and he says yeah it's kind of sort of free jazz with with improvisations so yeah there's also an opportunity for someone to play the mouse music my wonderful one of my favorite durham students tori longdon who's now a conductor always was a great singer and she she once said she couldn't make a tutorial because she was singing backing vocals for James in the Albert Hall. She actually bravely sang the mouse score as best she could. It was kind of tricky because of the pitch, you know, and the speed. But but yeah, you can. I'll, I'll try and get the video clip from Tori singing it because it's, it's certainly memorable.
0: It kind of um, made me think, you know, the Eurovision Song Contest. I kind of hoped that we got more than a nil point here in the UK for our entry um, in the mouse category because... You know, we don't typically do very well in sing- singing competitions, do we really?
1: <laughs> no, no. You know, Buck's fizz is perhaps not the great highlight of British music. But I've yeah, I've been very keen to try and publicize it next next May, perhaps. Can have another stab at uh, getting it back in the public eye and, and ear because uh it's you, you could do a whole book on singing mice to be honest with you. It's so many stories.
0: You know, like I said, you know, this book is just a real kind of dive into lots of different types of, of tales around animals and the book is sectioned so that start on this journey of creatures that you associate more with the home, with pets, things that live near the home to then going further afield and having animals that are more exotic and just that distinction I think is an interesting one because I think it's something that you see when you look at accounts of animals and animal hauntings there's there's far more prevalence of certain types of accounts than there are others you know animals very much associated with the home and lesser so animals further afield that you might associate with livestock with with meat with food with you know animal production and all those kinds of things and you know I think in some ways that says something about we tell these stories we want to continue finding out about these things because of our own empathy and our own you know love of certain types of animals because of that association of our own pets and and so on and so forth so it was it was fascinating to see that you you yourself kind of drew that distinction as well when when kind of collating these accounts
1: yeah it was extraordinary to see the the influence of the menageries um, and elephants was was a, a subject i learned a lot about when i started looking at this and the old belief you know that elephants uh never forget and the elephants are peculiarly intelligent they really do seem to be and do perhaps have kind of paranormal abilities um there was a chap i met who'd spent quite a lot of time in india and there was one person who was particularly kind of bonded with the elephants and they were very fond of him uh, and when he died all the elephants progressed to his house and sat down in the street outside the window um we'll see that that's actually something that you get with dogs and cats you know purely domestic animals uh, across the world as well but yeah the um the kind of in the 19th century when you've got say you know in 1830 uh elephants being taken across the country and often they'd just be walked because an elephant that's the easiest thing to do and they'd have to go through the toll and if they ever sort of weighed them you know charge you God knows how much by the ton for the elephant but there's an account of somebody seeing one of these traveling uh through the city um and it looks like something you want to film. You know, he's absolutely thunderstruck because he seems never to have seen an elephant. He's possibly never seen a picture of one, but he's certainly never seen one live. He's never seen one in a zoo. And he's standing there in sort of childlike terror shouting, "Will nobody tell me what it is. Will nobody stop it? So, yeah, there you are minding your own business in the sort of tame uh, English countryside. We expect all the animals to to have number plates. And suddenly this astonishing impossible thing starts Trotting down the road to you, uh, waving its waving its trunk and bellowing.
0: We've seen this on the news recently, haven't we? With elephants following those paths to get to their usual waterholes, but because of mm. of issues, them getting slightly lost and then causing havoc with them, te- you know, terrorizing neighborhoods and literally walking through people's backyards, and you know, the community having to do everything that they could to try and mm. help steer these these elephants. To new water because that water had gone. I mean, it was some incredible footage on the news over the summer, just seeing this little herd of very tiny elephants sleeping in people's backyards.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, this and- seems to be happening more and more, doesn't it, with so many animals that, that are trying to find water. Um, the funny thing was in London uh, and other cities in Britain in the 19th century, elephants going mark, you know, not, not a few times, turning up in people's houses in the middle of the night, helping themselves to bread and cakes off the table. And, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly the idea of sort of dignity with elephants, that there was one that you know, we'd expect always to be given its, um, its bucket of wine before the keeper had his glass of wine. They gave elephants a tremendous amount of alcohol back in the day. Uh, and the one time the, the, the keeper uh, took his wine first, the elephant never forgot it uh, and never forgave him. Uh, and there was another case in uh, Newcastle where an elephant was actually tried for murder because it seemed to have been treated so badly by a drunken keeper that it killed him. And something about the elephant's peculiar status, I think, is attested by the fact that it uh, it seemed to be a candidate for a trial after this perhaps, you know, not unjustifiable killing.
0: So in terms of all of the different accounts that you came across and that you put into the book, was there any one that really did stand out as as something that just really intrigued and fascinated you? Just, you know, something that really threw your thinking on its head or just really enjoyed reading and then putting down in your own words
1: yeah there's one i think which really stands out um and that is railway jack the the railway dog from the late 1870s until he died of old age in 1890 he loved traveling on trains and this made me hunt up other accounts and find what an extraordinary set of railway dogs they've been all across the world, down to 1961, and Railway Jack seems to have been the first and best. I'll say right now to get this point in, it's an absolute disgrace that Railway Jack does not have a statue. Britain claims to be a nation of great dog lovers, and sometimes you listen to people think it's the Greatest nation of dog lovers in the universe, but he does not have a statue. Compare this to Lampo in Italy, who has one, and many other dogs have been memorialized by statues. There's a lovely statue to a dog called Jacques in Poland, in Krakow. Beautiful piece of work, actually, which I saw a few years ago. Anyway, um, I'm sure we'll get railways jack statue in a matter of days now but we uh, start with him being noticed as a regular passenger on the railway in sussex east sussex uh, and traveling around uh, the area stations around lewis but always somehow managing to get back to sleep in the station at lewis at night no one knows whose dog this is Um, but it, it loves trains and it somehow seems to be able to navigate its way back to always get the last train from, say, Brighton or Eastbourne to lewis where it sleeps so it becomes more and more well known and presently it's presented to royalty more than once it will get given silver dog collars it gets given by some rich lady a special dog bed which it shuns because it likes to sleep in the waste paper basket uh, in the station and this animal must have traveled hundreds perhaps thousands of miles in about 12 years he had this sort of circuit around lewis but it apparently went to france with a soldier at one point. Uh, i think it might have mistaken the soldier for a railway guard because the uniform he almost never made a wrong journey uh, at one point apparently somebody in a sort of well-meaning way put it on a train that he didn't actually want to go to so it ended up in scotland by mistake but by this time jack was so famous that he was fated by all the station staff in uh, in scotland and fen looked after for some days didn't seem to want to let go of him uh, another occasion he was in berwick and he came back covered in ribbons because he'd been the guest of honour at a wedding now in 1882 uh, he had a bit of bad luck when he was chasing or I think he was Going for a dead pigeon to kind of eat it on the rails in London, and he got hit by a train when he missed his footing trying to jump out of the way onto the platform. It's a very small dog, a terrier-type dog. Uh, so he had a very badly injured leg, but again, his fame was such that the vets made every effort to treat him and save him. So they they cut the leg off uh, carefully, and he was fine except he had three legs. So that's the question comes up here genuine one i think if we're gonna have a statue should he have three legs or four legs but he he did quite well with his three legs and despite being a three-legged dog he was fated at dog shows you know dog shows in the victorian period i mean the height of snobbery and yeah there's this three-legged anonymous mart uh who gets treated really like a celebrity down to the details of you get little newspaper accounts of railway jack was at such a dog show and made much of his headquarters for this day was the red lion hotel so this is a bit like saying oh you know johnny depp will be staying at this hotel if you want to kind of doorstep or stalk him so yeah how how did he make his way on these trains over and over again uh, and almost never make the wrong journey and almost never fail to get back to sleep in in lewis station uh, i'm asking that question as a genuine question we, we don't know but i'll start giving more details about what dogs can do and the clues we do get about how they make astonishing journeys and navigations one little detail that is also echoed by some other things we'll hear is that he's in the papers at one point for Having been absent for a while and then suddenly turning up at the funeral of one of the platform inspectors, it was Mr. Bryant from Eastbourne. So Eastbourne is not Lewis. He's not exactly on his his obvious home turf, but he manages to get to the funeral. (laughs) <laughs> you know, he doesn't just get to the station he gets to the church and he behaves very respectfully he takes a peek down into the grave like everybody else and he also attends another funeral of um the head porter from lewis a man called isgar uh a few weeks before that so there's You know, absolutely baffling kind of question here about how the dog knows the funeral's going on, knows the person's died, knows how to get there. But actually, as we'll see, there's a lot more cases that parallel that attention to a person and attention to uh, a dead or a dying person from from dogs and cats.
0: It makes me think of um, the the Japanese dog. And I'm probably going to say the name of the dog completely incorrectly. But I don't know if you've heard of, of Hashiko in Japan.
1: No, Where okay.
0: This dog does have a statue.
1: <laughs> yeah, well there you go, you see. There's many yeah. all over the world. Yeah.
0: And also films made after it. So, you mm. know, we really are kind of letting the side down. Um, but yes, he he used to turn up every single day to greet this chap off of uh the train when he was coming back from work mm. and was really regular, would would know just instinctively when he should be there to to, to meet this person. And sadly the person died and Mm. the dog continued to turn up every single day at the train station waiting for this this person Uh, i think this is
1: coming back to me now unless it's a different one because i expect there's similar stories from other countries but yeah that that thing about him dying and the dog keeps the the routine Uh, yeah yeah that's an interesting one it's that's a dog going to a place isn't it but the absolutely the thing of dogs going to meet people is a is a good one. Um, A lovely, lovely case of this comes from the last great railway dog, Lampo, in Italy. And Lampo suddenly appeared, a stray dog, um, a medium-sized furry dog, at a railway station, Campiglia Marittima, just a bit south of Florence, a bit closer to Florence than to Rome, and not far from the, the actual coast. And a chap called Elvio L- Barlatani was, I think, the deputy station master. He took a particular liking to Lampo, and presently he finds that Lampo sneaked on the train uh, when he's going back to his home, uh, a few miles away in Piombino and he, he has a bit of trouble the first night because Lampo gets in a fight with his cat tiger and knocks the table over and so forth. But the family generally takes a fondness to Lampo, named Lampo by them for lightning, the way he darts about. And the little girl, particularly, Mirna Balatani, is very fond of Lampo. And come 1961, when the dog finally dies, with very good reason, because aged four and going to kindergarten every day, Mina is presently walked there by Lampo. Now, this would be impressive in its own right. I'm sure many kind of older people have got stories about dogs that walk them to and from school. I knew a woman who was walked to School by her dog each day, uh, but wait for this. Uh, Lampo basically his routine is he likes to sleep in the station a bit like Railway Jack, so he always manages to get a train back from Piombino in the evening to sleep Campiglia Maritima for the night. Uh, this means that he has to get another train in the morning to Piombino to meet Mina in time to walk her to the kindergarten. He then walks back to the station at Piombino. He gets another train back to to um, Maritima, and he spends the day there. But quite early on, it's about two o'clock or 2.30, she leaves the kindergarten, he'll get his train back to Piombino, he'll walk to the kindergarten, he'll meet me, and he'll always be waiting at the gates, and he'll walk her home. The dog did this for eight years. And I mean, sometimes it was making crazy journeys across Italy for reasons that we'll see. Uh, and yet, it you know, the first time it got back from one of these hundreds of miles Journey. The first thing it would do was make sure it got to uh, take Mina to kindergarten. Mina is still around. I haven't talked to her, but you can find her on Facebook. So I think some kind of interview with her is well overdue. uh She and the dog did become celebrities. They did have the TV cameras on them back in the day, and Lampo was in. Uh, Life magazine was it or no this week magazine in 1960 had more space than John F. Kennedy. So his poor animal was hounded by the paparazzi uh, in its later years. Uh, And the wonderful thing about this is it's one of the few cases where somebody's attached to the dog for a very long time and then actually writes a book it's the loveliest loveliest thing uh is balatani's book on lamppost very hard to get hold of sadly i had to read it in the british library i was feeling like apologizing to the person next to me i was constantly bursting out laughing uh in the sober atmosphere of the of the humanities reading room and yeah the the dog shows not just that ability to obey this incredibly tight routine for, I think it was eight years with Meena, but at one point, uh, two points actually, he gets lost on trips out at the weekend in the countryside, and he finds his way back to Uh, Barlatani's house 15 miles then things get a bit tricky when one of the station masters starts getting uppity about uh, Lampo in his slightly older age he's not quite as agile uh, despite his name and at one point he makes a leap for the door and now the train's a bit modernized they've got automatic shutting doors the door gets shut in the doors halfway in halfway out so the the station master reluctantly says look he's got to go this is dangerous you know we can't have this. So he exiles the dog. Now, this has been a constant companion of um, Mina and Balatani's uh, wife and himself for a long time by now. Um, Balatani comes upon Mina, very young at this stage still, praying to the Madonna that the, the dog will be sent back to them. And whether it was the Madonna's work or not, I'm inclined to think it was something more interesting. But having been exiled to Rome, which was a pretty long way from uh, Maritima, uh, the dog comes back and um the station master nothing daunted decided right we've got to be more thorough so he sends the dog down past naples which is getting over about as far south as you can get in italy and months go by and balatani and family Trying to reconcile themselves to the fact that the dog is gone that's the end of it and very sad uh, and several months I think it might be more than six months later the dog turns up again uh, at campelia maritima and in you know, his a bit of a state but uh, but recovers and yeah he uh he, he had an epic life of global fame in his his later years and died on the stage he loved in the end obviously a lot slower by 1961 and he was hit by a train and and that was the end of him but you can go and see his statue uh, to this day and I'm sure Mina Barlatani would have many fond memories of of Lampo if, if you asked him um, the last little note to it is that one day Barlatani saw at the station an unusual looking man um, who seemed to have a strange kind of bond with Lampo and when he questioned this chap he said yeah this dog in let's say I don't know, 1951 52 maybe it was 52 it, it was with us on a ship at Leghorn and it got lost in the port before we sailed. And there's a question about Lampo, you know, made train journeys quite a long distance as well as the ones uh he made just between Piombino and and Maritima so was he going looking for his owner all the time he was noted for looking out to sea in a particularly wistful way whenever Barlatone took him to the beach so there might have been a bigger story of, of loss as to where he came from in in 53.
0: It's interesting how you look at some of the accounts that you wrote about in the book about dogs and how they really do kind of seem to have this sense of direction sense of place connection with their owners. And if you compare that alongside many of the accounts of of dogs and ghost dogs, you can kind of see similar threads and similar accounts. And I I don't know if that kind of adds more credibility and more authenticity to these accounts that they really do seem to kind of mirror a lot of accounts of, of dogs and how they behave in real life. But I mean, I suppose that the most famous example that I can think of is, is Bobby the Greyfriar's dog that you know, for for ten years after the death of his owner was reported to sit by the the graveside of his owner in death, and then after the dog himself died, there have been numerous accounts of disembodied sounds of a dog barking in the in the graveyard, as well as reports mm. of apparitions of, of Bobby sat by the grave itself. And so, mm. you know, that's the kind of the most exact most famous example of that that i can think of but i can Mm -hmm. i certainly know there are a lot more of similar types of stories around dogs just staying near around the location of a loved one either in life and in death it's it's a strange kind of crossover
1: yes yes i mean that one seems to have a combination of the person and the place doesn't it because when the person's died the place still holds bobby and there's a, a broad very interesting division between Dogs that go to a place, go to their home, basically, and I'm sure you know countless listeners all know these cases. My mother uh, loved beyond anything her dog, Pat, when she was a child and a teenager, and it was stolen by the gypsies um, at one point. Uh, they were all heartbroken, and Pat came back several days, it might have been weeks even, I've talked to with my uncle, but... Uh, sometime later with a rope around his neck, which in the case of having been stolen by the gypsies. Uh, and that would have been a few miles where they're likely to be in terms of getting home. But, of course, the archetypal dog going home is Bobby. And It will be the centenary of bobby the wonder dog uh, next year but i think we can get ahead of it and give uh his story uh right now bobby was on holiday with uh his owners uh husband and wife and two little girls leona and nova and they were in uh, indiana traveled all the way from oregon so from the west coast uh Long way east, I think estimates range up to 3,000 miles. While they were there in August 23, uh, 1923, the uh, dog bobby was attacked by three dogs at once made a run for it and they simply couldn't find him they stayed over their time and you can imagine the state of things driving those two girls back all the way to oregon uh wondering about bobby was he going to come back and all the rest of it well this is august and you know imagine by christmas 1923 it's a lonely christmas with bobby's bones wrapped up at the tree and the girls lamenting can they have a new dog where is bobby uh, it's february 1924 when the dog limps in it is their dog <laughs> this dog became justly famous he played himself in his own film uh, a few months later and they traced his uh, his journey and one of the things he did across two thousand two and a half thousand miles i mean through the coldest Winter weather, you can imagine, across deserts, across lakes, across mountains. One of the things they know he did was that he went to all the service stations where the family had stopped on the way back. So there's no possible way that the dog can have done this by any kind of mundane accepted means there's no way it could have smelled its way home i mean what scent trail is it following anyway but across absolutely sub-zero temperatures you know for months on end there's no way it could have done that so as we'll see the, the the best guess is is what's called a side trail psi in terms of the Greek term used for the paranormal now and that this trail can remain live for as long as six months and more so that you know what's interesting in that detail is the dog is going to the place where they have left a trail they've left these trails at the places they stayed the service stations on the way back so, yeah, this is the most epic story, I think, of uh, a dog going home and some pretty epic ones of, of cats as well, actually. And um, then we end up with the, in some ways, more baffling questions uh, of dogs that go to their owners. And the most famous of these probably is World War One, an uh, Irish chap called James Brown becomes a private and uh, goes to Armontiere with Staffordshire uh, rifles and by this time he's just moved to uh, Hammersmith with his wife but as with a lot of these cases it's been quite rigorously studied by Rupert Sheldrake the dog prefers one person to another so when a dog's waiting for someone to come home it's one person that tends to dominate that uh, routine. And he's particularly fond of uh, Brown, of James Brown, the husband. And he, he's heartbroken when um, Brown goes off to fight in France. So presently, Brown gets a letter from his wife saying, I'm terribly sorry if." To- tell you that um, Prince has run away and we can't find him anywhere. Brown writes back and says, well, you won't find Prince there in London because he's here with me. Brown initially thought someone was joking when he came back to camp and was told we've got your dog, but no, it was Prince. Uh, This dog became uh the mascot of the regiment it had its own khaki jacket it was quite skilled at sitting on horseback and minding a horse it was a top ratter uh once killed 137 trench rats in a day and it survived the war incredibly uh, and went home to to die back in England. Now, again, people have slightly fudged the the question of it just sort of following soldiers. I mean, come on, this is the First World War. If you just follow soldiers, what the number of different places you could end up from France to Italy to Belgium to you, you name it. But he finds Brown in Armontier. Now, the interesting thing is that it was, in fact, in the First World War that on a large scale, they tested dogs to send messages across war-torn France. And they were very good at it uh, across incredibly uh, daunting and frightening territory. Time and again, they got back with a message. And the reason they got back with a message to somewhere they would perhaps never been was because they wanted to find their owner. So (laughs) We've got these stories. We've got the story of Mr Doggy uh, imaginatively named by a regiment in Reading who adopted Mr Doggy as their mascot uh, in the time of the Boer War. Presently went off to fight in the Boer War. Uh, Off they go to South Africa and the dog goes with them and it travels uh, on the ship with them. Unfortunately, gets off the ship at one port uh, and they re-embark, travel south by ship and then actually march north Um, northeast I think up South Africa quite some distance and a few weeks later there is Mr Doggy back with the regiment so what's going on there is a bit more complicated it seems to be following the whole regiment but nonetheless it's, it's unlikely that's a coincidence and we're left with this question of how does a dog zero in on its owner in you know hundreds of miles away in completely unknown territory somewhere it's never been And there are scientific hints of this. Perhaps, again, there's some kind of psi trail or some kind of uh, trail that the person has, a signal that they have almost. Uh, There's a lot of research being done on this by Sheldrake. But actually, with science having failed to take this very far, the very simplest and actually most rigorous answer for how dogs do this in those circumstances, and perhaps the answer to how Bobby did it as well, is love.
0: I think is is something that you know again i think given our affinity with animals is something that we really do hold on to isn't it that we have those same instincts for our own pets and creatures that we love animals that we love and and in in some ways there are people who dismiss animals as having those same kinds of deep feelings those deep emotions because they're not humans, so therefore they can't feel like us they can't think like us but the truth is Animals are truly remarkable. They can do remarkable things. And who knows what they really think and what they experience and how they see the world and how they see us humans as part of their worlds. Before we head back to the podcast, if you haven't already visited the Haunted History Chronicles Patreon page, now is the perfect time to join to listen and enjoy a multitude of additional podcasts and materials. With the midwinter lights dimming, you can look forward to daily accounts of hauntings and ghosts for each day of the month of December, spooky content to lead through Christmas and beyond into the new year. So if you want to enjoy some of those Victorian macabre traditions of gathering for ghost stories, why not find us using the link in the podcast notes and prepare to enjoy some haunting tales as you warm yourself by a fire. And now. Let's head back to the podcast. Can be very judgmental, I think, and very dismissive in some cases as to.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's tricky to know what's going on with uh, animals that don't talk. Although a surprising number of dogs uh, have actually talked, apparently, right? um, and there's some pretty heavyweight witnesses. Uh, to say nothing of the number of witnesses, uh, because of uh, the dog hands that talked on the music hall stage uh, in Europe. And, uh in in America in the early 20th century but yeah there's some um, an extraordinary story um about uh American who had a dog uh, when he and his brother was were, were children and one day they were traveling back from somewhere on the farm to the house and it was incredibly dusty in you know, a hot american summer and they were in the car some of them in the truck um one of the 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 boy's brother was on his bike ahead of them there was a terrible dust storm blowing out you could barely see anything the dog was running along with the boy on the uh bike and suddenly there was this terrible yelp and they uh they found that the dog had thrown itself under the car uh, and it died. And this was because the brother had fallen down off his bike uh, and was was about to be run down by the by the truck. And there's other stories like this, you know, of dogs pulling kids out of the paths of cars, of trains. And tellingly enough, this this was uh, a story belonging to Roger foots who wrote the classic book uh, Next of Kin about, his experiences with chimpanzees, and you know what he learned about their um, intelligence and their abilities, their learning skills, and so forth. So yeah, uh, altruism is just is just one thing, and love again uh, in in cows is, is one that's less known about I think with dogs and cats but there's a well-documented case and I owe this to a terrific essay by uh, my friend Robert Charman who's written a great book on uh, paranormal abilities and his essay on animals is about the best you can get on this subject in a few pages there was uh, a well-documented case in Britain where Absolutely typical, you know. You've got a cow and a calf, and the, they get separated. One is sold to one place, uh, and one is sold to another place. And in this case, the um, cow Blackie uh, was sold and transported by lorry, and the calf taken away about seven miles distant. So, yeah, the the, the cow's evidently two-year-old heifer was evidently distraught about the loss of this few months old calf and uh, it was the following night the cow escapes uh, out of the farmyard where it's been moved and the next morning it's found at the farm of one Arthur Sleeman suckling his calf um, there's no question about this because they've both got auction tickets still you know numbered tickets um, so these were the mother and child and how much you know that instinct to try and do that goes on and is thwarted, we we don't really know. But um, that that is documented and and happened.
0: It just it staggers me because you know in all these different accounts that we've been. We've been listening to. We can see just how truly remarkable animals are, and how how they really do have that capacity for the same kind of human emotions as as, as we have, and thinking and exploring animals in the in the paranormal world. If you look at books reporting accounts of, of paranormal activity, the vast majority of, of books do not reference animal paranormal activity, animal apparitions or any type of activity associated with animals. You know, you can go so far as to say there have been studies that have kind of looked at specifically this question, why aren't there more examples of animals in the paranormal field? Why aren't there more documented accounts of them? And if you look at books, studies have kind of shown that as many as one fifth of books just don't have any reference to them at all, which, for me, it's kind of staggering because I think these accounts do exist. I think it's a case of are they being reported in the same way as human apparitions, human paranormal activity? Why is it that accounts of animals don't get that same kind of attention? And, you know, why is it that for some people, they have that real kind of difficulty in making that kind of stretch in thinking, well, they might believe in human ghosts, human apparitions, paranormal activity around humans after yeah. death, but can't make that same kind of leap when it comes to animals. Because of that perception, well, they don't think, they don't feel, they're not as intelligent as us, so how can they possibly come back into the afterlife? And you know, I think that's one of the aspects as to why maybe there is less reporting on that, this kind of, very much this association that somehow animals don't make it into the afterlife because they're not like us and i think it and i think that kind of shows the bias that exists within this field in actually looking for it to be honest
1: yeah that's that's a good point i think this is an area actually where people will either have their own stories about their deceased pets dogs and cats horses also there's accounts of or you just got to ask your friends with with pets uh particularly people you know, older people who've had a lot of pets over perhaps several decades, and they they might not kind of, you know, throw this in your face and tell you, but when you ask them and say, Oh yeah, all of my animals, all of them, dogs, cats, across decades, they come back for about a week after they've died to say goodbye. And one particularly compelling case was a woman in America who the, the, the nature of cats, as we know, is you know, slightly whimsical and perhaps someone so faithless. So you feed the beast and uh, have it vaccinated and all the rest of it at great expense. And it goes off and sleeps every night on someone else's bed in someone else's house. They don't even have to feed it, but it takes a fancy to this person. Now, this woman was was a case in point and her neighbor's cat would come sleep on her bed every night. And uh, happening as usual throughout uh one particular week but on the thursday she sees the cat's owner and he's looking very glum he says what's wrong what's wrong he says, "Oh, the, the cat died on tuesday well it's been sleeping on her bed ever since and not only that but she's got the weight of it is there uh, on her bed you know she didn't know what well, she didn't know any difference so She just thinks it's 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 the cat sleeping on the bed but it's not you know the cat has died uh, two days ago and there was a case in england uh with dogs where they had a couple of live dogs in the house but there were ghost dogs in the house uh and the ghost dogs were so live and so you know unfrightening that the the live dogs played with them habitually and the the, the owners of the house just got used to it as people sometimes do with dogs And yeah, I I got talking to all an example, I think, of how many just ghost stories generally that are out there. Um, Sometimes I'll go looking for and ask people, do you believe in ghosts? But sometimes I'm just having a walk and I was on holiday and, walking out to the coast, and bumped into a woman who was doing her garden. Uh, it was quite an interesting old house. I thought it was a lodge house for the, the old castle. Uh, she was a toll house, interestingly, and it was the kind of house where you, you eventually you say, look, does it have any ghosts? You know? <laughs> I've been talking for a little while, and I got some extraordinary ghost stories off this woman, uh, but also her pets. Um, Newfoundland dog had been put down at the vets that day, and eight hours later, it's back it's back in the house and it, it varies from things like apparitions to hearing the dog's claws clicking about as it, it walks on the on the wooden floor you know there's apparently nothing nothing there um other people have said that they've had lucid dreams you know not your ordinary category of just seeing the dog in a dream because you're sad that it's gone but lucid dream where the dog really seems to be there and you can smell it you know and um that's quite a quite a powerful one you know after many years you remember the smell of your dog I suppose so yeah that's some um, that's something I think that there's a huge area waiting for all these stories to be brought together there must be hundreds probably thousands that people have got about dogs cats horses perhaps much much more and then at least as big an area one that's been a bit better researched is animal psychic ability in terms of broadly two things knowing when their owners are coming home this of course is the title of a famous book by the the great scientist Rupert Sheldrake um disgracefully um libeled once again on wikipedia unfortunately this is the go-to source for for almost anything and very very useful source wikipedia but when you read the entries on someone like sheldrake on matthew manning on anything interesting in the paranormal you think somebody should put their name to this account because this is just a version of trolling really so do read sheldrake's book don't go by the nonsense on wikipedia um And Sheldrake has studied hundreds and hundreds of pet owners and dogs and cats and remarkable detail, which gives us a a much better picture than just, yeah, the dog runs to the gate, the dog runs to the window. The cat always seems to get interested just before I come home. Um, He's got enough cases to have worked out that, yes, the dog seems to get to the gate, the window, the door, um, and won't move, not interested in anything else. Let's say anything from five minutes to you know, a couple of hours before the person actually gets back. So this is a case where you've got a husband or wife there or somebody in the house to, to see what the dog or cat is doing slightly more with male dogs apparently and again it's centered on one person usually that they prefer particularly but shelter has got enough cases and details and he's actually done this on video quite extensively with a dog called jt in manchester enough cases to work out that the dog seems to make its decision and get interested and get agitated either when the person gets on a train, gets off a plane, for example if they made a plane journey, and every type of journey is covered by this really, gets into a taxi to come home or decides to come home and the very best I think is somebody where the dog gets very agitated and the person at home can't work out what's it doing because you know and Sure enough, the the person wasn't getting on a train at that moment. They checked with them and they they didn't come home until several hours later. The detail turned out to be that when they checked the time, the man that the dog was waiting for was at the theatre, was bored of being at the theatre and he was looking at his watch. And he actually did this twice, and the dog reacted twice. So similar cases where a person decides to come to a particular place, whether it's home or they're visiting somebody, the dog gets excited, waits at the door for 10 minutes, gives up, goes and lies down. 20 minutes later, it gets up again, and it goes back to the door. And sure enough, the person has decided to come home, changed their mind, decided to come home, got delayed, whatever it might be. So. Sheldrake has given good reason to think and he's quite good at ruling out other factors such as someone in the house giving a cue that they know that, the you know, the person's going to come home. And he's, he's ruled that out in a lot of cases because they simply don't know in many of them. But, yeah, there's a, a very strong sense that in a lot of cases, the dog knows when the person decides to go home so they're reacting not just to that person and their movements but they're reacting to their intention and there seems to be almost no falling off with distance here that it can happen across thousands of miles the dog for example can have been flown somewhere there was a dog in vietnam that was flown dropped down left there found its way back across the jungle three weeks later so there's no question of any you know trail or using landmarks It was in a plane to get there in in the first place and the the other detail that's interesting is that although thousands of miles distance don't seem to make any difference a dog might get slightly interested when the person gets on their train plane taxi in their car what have you but it gets very interested when they're close and it's as though that signature that trail that sigh kind of aura around the the loved man or woman gets stronger as they get nearer but certainly i think if you know people are listening here and people ask their friends the stories are, are out there i got i got you know another from a friend in america this afternoon um and they've worked in various different places and wherever they're coming back from over the journey te- takes between 10 and three hours uh, 10 minutes and three hours uh the dog always five minutes before they get in it's there at the door always with without fail
0: And this is what I think, again, is just echoing something that we've already kind of spoken about is that, you know, we we really do see how remarkable animals are. And the fact that we we don't investigate this kind of aspect of their behaviors more and ask these types of questions staggers me. And and it's also staggering to me that we don't we don't really explore and examine the different types of hauntings and accounts of hauntings of animals that there are out there. But, you know, somehow we we stick to really being more focused and more interested in the, the human aspect. And that seems to be where we start and where we end. And it, it does seem to be this missing kind of piece of the puzzle. And when I think about research and when I think about paranormal investigators, when we look at the type of equipment that is used to... To investigate a location, we can see some of the the failings and and some of the the missing pieces because, you know, most of these types of activity Mm. are immediately assumed to be human as opposed to animal. So say, for example, a REM pod starts to 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 activate if a 2 meter goes off during an investigation yeah the assumption immediately is that it's human as opposed to well this mm. could, could this be a dog could this be mm. you know, some kind of an apparition associated with an animal some kind yeah. of paranormal activity associated with an animal our first mindset is to think human as opposed to non-human and, and that's yes. a mistake because it means we're possibly missing something
1: yes i mean and, that like presumably the equipment is designed with human biology in mind isn't absolutely. it um, and, you know not-
0: and it's that kind of of, um where where you have equipment that might be tapping into intellectual hauntings you know where you're getting some kind of communication back yeah yeah you know again you're it's very much focused on human as opposed to non-human unless you as the paranormal investigator or you the researcher are starting to kind of see how you might be able to use it to tap into other types of of activity and other types of
1: yes the other funny thing is turning it on its its head you know a lot of this is very gimmicky and some of these things like ghost adventures produce appalling results and the presenters tend to be sometimes terribly egotistical you know the exact opposite of a a true psychic who's a, a very selfless person often doesn't take any money for what they do and is very good at opening themselves up to what's there but with all this kind of gadgetry that tends to impress people who like gadgets, um, I've often thought, and this is based on a lot of stories about the experiences of animals and children in haunted houses, you want to tell me what to take into a haunted house? A child and a dog. Uh, that would get you an awful lot of interesting results uh, without having your batteries fail or the rest of it. And um, yeah, I think you know there's so much to be learned about us through studying animals it's been plausibly argued that we had psychic telepathic abilities and that they tend to fall off as the left brain shoves them out as it were the kind of heavy conceptual stuff with fixed ideas about what isn't isn't possible the logical left brain dominates and, and it's been argued plausibly uh, by Ian McGilchrist that, that it's dominated successful developed nations since the the enlightenment but if you go to tribes in africa aboriginal tribes they just habitually use telepathy uh distances uh, along a, a long hunt to know when a kill's been made and they do it fairly routinely in the way that you know people might use telephones. So that, yeah, this was there for all of us. And you can see it having very useful evolutionary benefits uh, way back. And animals, of course, haven't had all that shoved out of them by the, the kind of left brain mentality. And what they can do in terms of not just this knowing their owner's behavior and intentions at a long distance, but in, in knowing when people are in trouble, um, Sheldrake's got a tremendous lot of stories about uh, people in life-threatening situations where a dog will know, and it's considerable distance away, it will run and save somebody that's fallen out of a kayak, is perhaps about to drown in in a river. And a remarkable number of cases, dogs and cats, often when the owners have gone on holiday and they've left the dog with a minder of some sort a long way away, you know, hundreds of miles, uh, and yeah, the, the, the animal seems to know when somebody's died. I mean, having read this today, I I asked a friend of mine, uh, again, person in America talking about the dogs and the, her coming home routine. Said, yeah, um, her mother had gone into hospice care uh, some years ago. She's very elderly, and uh, the mother had a Pyrenean dog, it was a wonderful, great, fluffy mountain dog, and suddenly, at one point in the night, the dog howled. Uh, in a way that they'd never done before, and shortly they got a call from the hospice to say that, yeah, the mother had, had just died. And in some ways the most remarkable case here is a cat where the Swiss family had gone away um, out of Switzerland on holiday uh, and the husband died he's 48 no history of serious illness he had a heart attack and he died so no indication this was going to happen back in switzerland with the minder the cap goes very very odd and they check the times not necessarily to the minute but they check it pretty closely Uh, and Yeah, hundreds of miles away, the cat is described by the minder as staring at a certain point in front of him as if he observed something special. So it's not just a sense that some weird kind of force across distance has been registered in the death and the crisis of of that owner but that actually there's a possibility we're never going to know i don't think because you know what can the cat tell us but there's a possibility that the cat is looking at that owner that that owner sent something of him to where the cat was and this will sound perhaps nuts to people not familiar with this but other people will know that there's a huge body of what are known as crisis apparitions um one of them actually was given by the great debunker of fraudulent mediums uh masculine i would have been the kind of james Randi of his day almost in that respect masculine had one of these in his family i think might have been two actually uh but there's loads and loads of accounts of people suddenly getting a visit from a friend that they thought was in another country they haven't seen for a long time uh the person perhaps doesn't speak seems a bit kind of peculiar they go away and presently they find that yeah they died thousands of miles away that afternoon Uh, is an amazing one where one uh, character in the 19th century uh, is is in Brighton and he's walking back from his meal at the hotel late at night along the promenade when suddenly a carriage pulls up and it's his aunt Um, what's my aunt doing she's quite elderly you know she should be in Cheltenham There's a whole carriage coachman horses everything um and he finds out in the morning that she's died that that night um whether that tells you something about the sort of egotistical nature of an aunt that can't possibly appear without a carriage and horses you know quite victorian in its way but yeah um so many people have seen you know, somebody who is dying, somebody who is dead. And perhaps the very best of these in the 19th century is a man called German Wheatcroft, who in the siege of Lucknow in India as a soldier was killed uh, and appeared to his wife and a couple of friends the same night in London. His wife took careful note of when this had happened. She got a note uh, from the army telling her when her husband had died and she said no this is wrong (laughs) so the army went back and checked and they said yeah you're right that's actually when he died so that's a pretty solid uh case but yeah we're left to ask in some cases as well as knowing these these things which just doesn't seem possible by any scientific knowledge we have the the animals actually seeing that person coming back to to say goodbye
0: It's, I mean, something that you're just kind of touching upon really kind of resonates with research that I've read. And there's this kind of um, early research that was, that was done within the parapsychology community around consciousness and shared consciousness that is Mm. tapping into um, apparitions, paranormal activity, haunting, that kind of um, umbrella of activity. Is it us as humans tapping into this shared consciousness that is also shared with with people as they've passed up passed on and i suppose when you kind of think of it like that is then the question of animals and and apparitions and hauntings around animals is this is this why we as humans find it more difficult to to experience those types of hauntings or acknowledge those because maybe we don't share those same types of experiences or conscious thought but yet they don't seem to have that same problem with us maybe that suggests that animals are more intelligent than us i think that's probably a possibility but you know this kind of shared consciousness that i think very much lends itself to why there are so many reports and so many accounts of of pet owners having experiences with their own pets because of that those shared experiences that kind of sense of of community you know understanding togetherness that kind of seems to follow through in 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 death and it's 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 kind of looking at all of these things and again i suppose it's this big untapped area that i think just isn't explored as much whether it's because we we tend to assume human first we want to explore human first as opposed to animal paranormal activity our equipment isn't sensitive we're not going to these locations where there might be more activity from something non-human but also is there something more about how our brains work and how animal brains work that means that there can be this disconnect as well why we don't see as many reports or many accounts
1: you know there's there's a
0: whole kind of host of questions that just yeah from there
1: yeah no that's that's very much at the heart of, of what I've been thinking really. One, one great thing about Robert Charman's book is that he goes across the human paranormal cases and the animal paranormal cases. And he has a, a wonderful essay on somebody who's probably quite famous by now, Elizabeth Mayer, um, who I think her book's called Extraordinary Knowing and it is it, a wonderful conversion story of how she was a straightforward psychologist, often you know academic psychologists such as Richard Wiseman can be the most hostile to uh, paranormal phenomena. She had no interest in it and you know no religious beliefs or beliefs of ghosts or anything like this but um, her daughter I was I think about 10 something like that was playing a harp in a Christmas concert and she was amazingly fond of this very special harp and tragically it was stolen from backstage during the concert the daughter was inconsolable mother tries to get her different harps won't play anything else so this is a kind of you know promising musical career snuffed out it seems and she tries all sorts of avenues the police are not at all helpful and there she is in uh, i think it's Oak, Oakland in uh, California, uh, at her wits end, quite desperate. She asks and asks people, she asks and asks people. She doesn't say, can somebody douse the harp for me from hundreds of miles away? But this is what she ends up being suggested she should do. And she gets in ch- ch- uh, touch with a veteran dowser, a chap called Harold McCoy. And he says, give me a moment, uh, and I'll tell you if it's still there or not. A few seconds later, he says, yeah, it's still there in Oakland. Um, he presently gets a map. And he tells her what street it's in. She gets uh, in touch with these people. It's not clear who's got it and you know what sort of criminality is going on here, but presumably it's been stolen and whoever's got it has not got it legitimately. So they, they give it back to her for a sum of money late at night in a car park. Um, This changes her life. She starts studying this. She studies people who can do this, uh, men and women. Interestingly, the women seem to do it a bit differently from the men, although both sexes can do it. And she then has an experience of her own uh, one day when... Her husband has given her sister a gold watch, which the sister isn't particularly fond of and keeps losing. The husband is getting fed up with this. And one afternoon before her husband's coming back, they find the watch has got lost again. They cannot find it anywhere. So the two of them, um, Elizabeth and her sister, are looking for this watch. Suddenly, Elizabeth gets this weird kind of autopilot where she's kind of walked through the experience of going into a particular cupboard, right to the back of a cupboard, moving things out of there and finds the watch. Turns out the husband's hidden it there to teach the sister a lesson. And yeah, this this sense of being on autopilot as being kind of walked through the experience in, in a way that was completely out of key with her ordinary mindset, is mirrored by the studies that have been done on dogs when they set them loose a few miles from home and watch them to see how they get home. Some of them can't do it. The dogs that can do it are mainly um, the alpha dominant type of dog. Some dogs that aren't getting lost is just to go and sit on someone's doorstep till you feel sorry for them and, you know, check their collar and they get picked up. But the dogs that can do it, they wander about for a little while. They look a bit kind of lost. They seem to get their bearings. Then their head goes up and they kind of point, as it were, and they just go and what's fascinating about this is that they don't seem to be seeing the terrain as they would normally see it say if they're out on a you know walk or if they're doing birding or whatever as a hunt dog they're not behaving like that they stumble over easy obstacles or into ditches uh, and they seem to be on a kind of sigh autopilot so that in actual fact they do better when it's dark they do better when it's foggy So as though anything normal around them is distracting and there's this psi trail that that takes them home and robert charman rightly i think says that you know this is eerily like what happens to elizabeth mayer and That does seem to be our best guess, just an educated guess, but our best guess is that this is the right brain, again, being allowed to take over. A male would have been, I think, a very left brain person as an academic psychologist. And the other little piece of the puzzle that helps us here is that there's two categories of householder who are much more likely to see a ghost, to react to a ghost, when nobody else can see it. And they are animals and children. And children until what, you know, 10, 11, 12, depending on the child, uh, I think, you know, they are in a very, very different world. They they lack the kind of basic self-consciousness that we take for granted after puberty uh, when we have a kind of second birth, really. And they're not they're not right brain people, are they? You know, (laughs) their charms are precisely that. They're not practical. Um, They're um, they're not particularly logical uh, in a lot of cases, so yeah, I don't think they've been forced out of that ability, as it were, which which animals have and which some people have all their lives uh, if, if if they're psychic.
0: Yeah, like I said, there's just so many interesting kind of rabbit holes to go down when you start really unpicking animals, the paranormal, parapsychology, just the weird, the wonderful, the remarkable when it comes to animals, and you know, it it kind of makes me sad that as remarkable as they can be in life we don't really look at how remarkable they may be in death that we just don't tap into some of those bigger deeper questions and you know as daft as it may seem my brother is as kind of adamant as you can possibly be that there is nothing beyond death he does not believe in the afterlife he doesn't believe in ghosts he doesn't believe in hauntings he is very black and white and whenever you know we talk about this kind of subject matter this is something that he always asks if there are ghosts if there is such a thing as ghosts why don't we see thousands of animals haunting our landscape why don't we see ghosts of dinosaurs stomping around and you know it's it's actually a very logical question to ask and it's it's one I ponder and you know I wonder if you've got a theory as to why we don't see dinosaurs their ghosts wandering the earth in the same way that we have all of these accounts of human beings.
1: Yeah it's it's a good point I I, I started off uh, early stages of my research in this from 2013 on thinking why don't we all see ghosts all the time now one answer to that which is a minor one which is important th- there's probably quite a lot of people who've seen ghosts and never realized it yep, a ghost can look just like you or me i mean elizabeth kubler ross quite a famous um academic in this area and she she had a friend who she hadn't seen for a long time didn't expect to see uh suddenly bumped into her in her office building and they went to have coffee at a cafe and had a you know seemingly normal kind of conversation and presently the friend went off and after all this had happened it turns out the friend was dead before she arrived at at the office building so if you're just passing somebody in a field a church a graveyard a street you don't have any reason to talk to them or touch them uh, you, you might not be aware of that but i think the bigger answer to to that question which is an interesting one is that people come back or animals come back for certain reasons they come back for a brief period as said to say goodbye Uh, they come back if they've got unfinished business if they died suddenly uh, if they died uh, what you might call unnaturally you know from uh, illness at a young age murder suicide accident and these people do genuinely seem to to come back more and Apart from the fact of you needing to come back, wanting to come back, there's also the question of where do you go if you are a ghost and you're, you're, you're dead, you go to an afterlife. Well, Christianity, I see your brother's dilemma here partly because Christianity um, hasn't been very helpful with this and it's surprisingly uninterested in ghosts, it's surprisingly unhelpful if you get a poltergeist in your house. The catholic church of all people can be some of the most arrogant dismissive and useless in these areas Uh, islam is much much happier with the idea of ghosts and it's just all perfectly normal that yeah there's spirits around us all the time Uh, judaism and buddhism have have the idea of reincarnation and this is the very best evidence for survival of what you might call the soul or just consciousness but a particular person that retains their particular memories and personality the evidence for survival of that is is reincarnation there's countless accounts from children of past life memories and they don't make a fuss about it they're not trying to get attention um, it's all just normal and you know they spook their parents insofar as they'll look at them as though you're stupid well home you know home where we go when we die that's where i was before i came back here um you know boy who's indicated clearly that he chose his parents from this home in the afterlife temporary one he chose them at a pink hotel near the beach in uh hawaii that was where they conceived um their child who apparently came back to be to be their child so yeah um the best evidence for survival of the soul seems to be reincarnation with spells of time in another dimension rather than calling it heaven and therefore once you've kind of passed over Transferred, uh, recycled yourself, as it were, uh, then you, you're not going to be a ghost anymore. So they've got a kind of sell-by date in in many cases. There are some that that kind of go on for hundreds of years.
0: But there is lots of evidence of you know spirits dissipating over time. Accounts from particular periods being very strong, and and gradually over time, that's something getting less and less, and and then other things coming to the fore in those in those same areas and you know when you look at that you do you do kind of see that like i said spirits hauntings can seem to wane and other things come to the fore and so it's very possible that the reason the reason why some of these very early types of creatures like dinosaurs or early man, caveman, why we don't see lots and lots of examples of these types of apparitions or residual hauntings or intellectual hauntings. All of these don't exist in the same way, you know, the same number of accounts, because we're talking a long time, that energy has dissipated, so therefore the spirit has dissipated. Well,
1: that's, that's funny you use the words energy there, you know. Um, there's there's a plausible theory by the veteran British ghost hunter Andrew Green, who uh, was pretty much hunting ghosts until he died, but didn't interestingly didn't believe in survival of the soul at all. Actually, and he spent a lot of time hunting ghosts. He was called in by Robbie Williams at one point, I think, um, and he believed that when you saw this, um, or you sorry, you had documented witness sightings of the same ghost so let's say you know a, a lady in black clothes with a red hat uh, in one place across perhaps actually hundreds of years but certainly decades and decades as a stately Homes say um and then presently you've got reports of her with um gray clothes and a pink hat and similar versions of this where yeah she seems to be fading but actually it can be reversed so that it can go from the grey clothes and the pink hat back to black clothes and a red hat. And his belief was that people were recharging this by either seeing it or being in its presence. Yeah. so actually yeah it's using human energy and that is a very very strong theory i think because that's clearly what happens with poltergeist cases that they're certainly using the energy of people in their house usually just one person um, and they they actually need that to throw things around to make noises and and so forth so yeah um the the idea of things fading you know you get very passive ghosts that that they aren't problematic they just kind of seem to go through the same walk or routine over and over again
0: you know that residual type haunting it's really fascinating when you start to think about it because it also taps into that idea of you know the stone tape theory are the reasons why we don't see some of these things because you know when we think about how the landscape has changed well the landscape that we're on right now is not the same type of environment that would have existed all of these years ago when when if i use my brother's example of dinosaurs roaming the earth So is the reason why we don't see them stomping around quite simply because they're attached to something much deeper in the earth and so therefore we're not kind of on that same plane so does that explain it i mean there's there's so many thoughts and ideas that kind of you can start to look at and question and think about about energy about stone tape theory about are we simply looking for them are we actually trying to find them you know, is our equipment sensitive? Are we being sensitive and aware enough of it? And, you know, when you actually start to examine it, the fact that the CIA looked into the question of ghosts and dinosaurs and whether the Loch Ness monster is an example of a residual haunting of, a, of an early dinosaur or not, the fact yeah. that you looked to that is fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, and- yeah, yeah. Well, the, the the person you bring to mind there is is the great uh, cryptozoologist ways well, of biologists and all sorts of things really a uh, wonderful character a great adventurer pat spain uh who you might want to have a, a chat with at some point he's got a couple of books at least coming out in december and he takes an open-minded attitude to these kind of legendary creatures around the world and goes kind of looking for them or you know talking to people who who claim to have seen them and believe in them and and so forth um I don't think he's done the lot less monster, but um perhaps he will someday. If anyone would know anything about ghosts of dinosaurs, it might be it might be Pat Spain, I don't know. But um yeah, I think there's a weird kind of interaction between different dimensions here. So that you know our physical environment does matter. And Ma- Matthew Manning was a very shrewd observer of the ghost and poltergeist activity. He suffered for years and years in his family and his boarding school. Fellows experienced at school, and he said, "Yeah, it went on much, much more in midwinter and midsummer, for example." So, the whole kind of electromagnetic thing that is done—I think, you know, legitimately sometimes in in the investigations, there might be something in in that. But I think what's what's fascinated me about, and it's been great to go back to these, these animal stories, is the sense that there is a bond. You know, and it, it sometimes goes both ways between a person and their cat, a person and their dog. And what's interesting is that that bond is built up. You know, some people might have innate psychic ability. Animals seem to have some kind of innate psychic abilities, but it's also a question of building that up through a relationship, through an experience and there's a few cases they're much less common than the ones where the dog the cat knows someone's coming home the dog the cat knows someone's died but there are cases where people know dogs have died now the sample might be too small to extrapolate much from it but as Sheldrake points out all seven of those people who knew the dogs died at that point at that moment were women and there's an extraordinary case where a woman who's written quite a lot on uh, the paranormal, Diane Archangel, I've got one of her books, she suddenly has a terrible stomach pains, absolutely atrocious stomach pain. she's travelling home to Texas and it's it's, you know it's bizarre it's like nothing she's ever experienced there's no cause or logic for it uh it's not any kind of normal food poisoning or anything like this she gets back uh, and she finds that there's been a terrible storm uh, at home in texas and the cat has been so terrified that unfortunately it bolts out of the house and it's mauled to death by dogs now when they look at the cat the site of the worst of these injuries is its stomach now if i'd just heard this one story on its own i don't think it would really register with me i I wouldn't be rude about it but i'd just not really pay attention the point is though that again in robert charman's book is a great collection of very short essays he's got absolutely mind-blowing stories about twins that it's you know something simple like one twin kevin in america shuts his hand in a car door and in britain the twin darren suddenly gets a stinging pain for no reason whatsoever and gets a bruise and there's countless stories like that and weirder i mean one of the vanderbilt sisters suddenly had agonizing pains in her stomach uh, over in america and presently found that her sister had just given birth prematurely in in britain so these cases which uh, you know are very very real Uh, and tested by all sorts of witnesses certain types of twins only certain types of twins suffer it but a lot of accounts uh, that does look weirdly like the bond that's you know it's not given to you when you're born but you you earn it as it were in the case of Diane and um, yeah you're you're suddenly almost that person or that that animal for a, a moment of crisis.
0: Which is fascinating I mean like I say just there's so many so many things to think about and to ponder and to explore when you when you start diving into this topic, it's pretty vast, like most things, you know, you can go down so many different, so many different little journeys, and um, they're always fascinating to discuss with you. Do you have, um, just to kind of bring the, the kind of the talk together, do you have any favourite stories of ghosts and animals? Is there any that any, you know, accounts or reports that have just really stood out for you as really fascinating ones, interesting ones.
1: Oh, there is a there is a, a fabled ghost on the Isle of Isle of Man, which uh, was supposed to be kind of a ghost dog or a fairy dog, because it depends what territory you're in. You know, if it's paranormal and the Isle of Man or Ireland, uh, parts of Scotland, it gets it gets attributed to the fairies. And uh, yeah, this 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 black dog in the Peel Tower uh, seemed to look like some kind of poodle. Uh, which was definitely not a real dog and um, what's interesting about this you know that you're in a place which being patrolled by the military all the time so a everything's fairly tightly controlled and you're supposed to know where and what everything is and b you're dealing with people who are not easily scared but uh, there was one soldier who got slightly drunk and said i'm going to deal with this dog and be it dog or be it devil you know i'll I'll sort it out Uh, he went down the passage where this dog's repeatedly being seen he came back in a state of gibbering terror and went to bed and died and and this actually matches you know an extraordinary number of um cases of people dying of sheer terror they just lie down in hopelessness and they, they die with what's been termed voodoo death in in something like three or four days um, there's so many accounts of people being frightened by the crudest ghost hoaxes beliefs in vampires magic of various kinds um in in tribal societies and uh yeah that was not a dog to be messed with despite the fact that it looked a bit like a, a, a cuddly poodle in uh in fairy territory but i think what I, I i i love and i hope what people find about this subject uh in all of its manifestations most of them are pretty benign and, and actually quite lovely in lots of cases is that the average pet owner and the average kind of open-minded person who knows anybody with pets will know much more about this than almost any scientist. I mean, Sheldrake is a rare exception, but yeah, the the stories are what matters. And I think what I've found with ghosts more generally and poltergeists and the paranormal is ask people, yeah. look That's them like- in the eye, listen to them, ask them some more, ask and you will be told. And, and I think there's probably countless stories out there. And yeah you, you keep listening and you keep collecting more details and you keep comparing one thing to another and this is this is how knowledge progresses it's it's a shame that some people have got so anti-scientific in the name of protecting science It's not a paradox but uh, but yeah i think if we keep keep going down the rabbit hole like good terriers do we'll 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 bring out some great catches
0: and i echo that because i think you know If you're researching the paranormal, if you are investigating the paranormal, just step back a moment and look at yourself as that researcher, as that investigator and ask yourself those questions. Are you open to investigating in a way that doesn't immediately assume that what, what you may be looking at is human? Could it be something that is animal? Are you asking the right types of questions? Are you exploring in the right types of locations to get some kind of a response? the more you look at this the more evidence the more accounts you can you can find of of stories of hauntings when it comes to animals kind of bordering on the funny to the serious to um animals that you wouldn't necessarily expect i mean there are there's mm-hmm. so much more evidence the more you look into it and you know one of the ones that i came across was this account of a of a chicken in london that was seen by an airman in 1943 and um he heard the sound of a carriage as well as the squawking of a of a a chicken yeah he kind of looked and he started exploring the area that he thought he he could hear and and was expecting to see a carriage and expecting to see a chicken what he saw was this featherless chicken running around in a circle confused no carriage but he could see this image of this featherless chicken running around running around Mm. and it eventually disappeared into a wall Mm. and there's lots of accounts of this featherless chicken running around in this particular area of, the, of London and running into a wall that is is there that, you know, it disappears through.
1: Yeah, and it's,
0: it's reported to be associated with scientists who are traveling, traveling along this little kind of stretch of the road where they were discussing theories around, you know, snow. It was December when they were making their, their journey and whether snow and cold could preserve the body in death. And um, so they literally stopped the carriage, went to a house on this street, paid for for a chicken, wrung its neck and um, proceeded to bury it in the snowdrifts on the side of the road and then came back weeks later to dig up the chicken to see if it was preserved and yeah. it's and so you know there's kind of i mean as i say there's there's weird there's wonderful there's funny there's serious there's just so many accounts when you start to look into it more and more yeah
1: yeah it's i'll have to look at that because chickens you, you you know they tend to get derogated as pretty low on the the, on the intellectual page. scale don't they but if, yes. if chickens are coming back that's an interesting that's, that's an interesting one
0: but again it's it's kind of what i started by saying to you about you know when looking at your book it's interesting how you separated it into Animals that you associate with the home, and then animals kind of further away, the exotic. Mm. And I think when you look at the types of accounts of animals within the paranormal world that are documented, they are predominantly ones associated with the home. And again, I think that's because you have to ask where are we actually looking? Are we actually open to other types of animals? Probably not, not if we're always investigating a homestead, the home, rather than the landscape, the outside. You know, it's taking some shifts you know it's, it's starting
1: to kind of think a bit broader i think yeah yeah i suppose the question is you know does it depend on a bond so does it have to be an animal that is Absolutely. very fond of a person and vice versa and that, that's not always a pet of course it might be as a zookeeper, a menagerie keeper yep. etc um, and it might might be a you know a, a farmer where the uh, the dog's more a working dog but but yeah, the, the questions need to, need to keep being asked. And I, I think it'd be great when this is a a whole kind of discipline of its own, really, a whole kind of field of its own that, that you know, has got loads of people pitching in from all sorts of angles.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, this is why I always love chatting to you, because we go down these little, you know, these rabbit holes, and it's just fascinating. Before we um, say goodbye, Thanks. no, one of the, the things that you've been Doing recently, which is a very new venture for you, is to set up and create your own podcasts. Do you want to tell yeah. everyone a little bit about your new podcast? So that they yeah,
1: well, first off, like I mean, you. big, big thank you to yourself because I, I don't think I realized how easy this could be and also how um, big it can be in terms of getting in an audience. Um, I, I know from a bit of experience with publishers that if you sell 50,000 copies of a book, uh, you're considered to have done a good job. You know, it's considered to be a trade book and a hundred thousand copies is is a great job so if you're getting uh, you know anywhere between 50 and a hundred thousand listens to a podcast in a few weeks then you're doing something I think very very interesting and I think a lot of the traditional mechanisms of publishing have got a little bit out of date and are not keeping pace with with what people want and with what people have to offer, if you like, as uh, readers, listeners, writers, thinkers. And one thing I like about podcasts is that you know some people just—I um, include myself in this—by a certain time at night, I, I'm not really up for reading a book uh, or looking at a screen, but I'll listen to things. And historically, in the time of Shakespeare and for quite a long time afterwards, people's culture was deeply oral. It involved uh, listening to one person read out of the sole textbook in a class and memorizing that. It involved listening to sermons and memorizing those. It involved the best seats, the most expensive at Shakespeare's Globe, not being the ones where you could see the best, but the ones where you could hear the best. And for a long time we've had this very, very visual culture and you know proliferation of photographs of people and images. Uh, And yet we seem to now, with this podcast culture, be going back to an oral culture which also has a universal kind of appeal to it, I think, and draw to it. And that's we all of us start off with being told stories by a voice. And in fact, before we even know what a story is, we're hearing a voice uh that talks to us that sings to us and so that's probably something quite quite basic and i think books that you read and that are particularly successful even there where you're reading them what's important is that a voice is talking to you in your head and in an onslaught of crazy technology uh, is is poised to smash the word out of existence ever more every every week that goes by and yet books keep keep being read and people want to be told stories so yeah i've over time you're minding your own business and just getting on with your life and you suddenly realize at the age of 53 christ i've got a lot of books and i seem to know a lot of strange things so you think well yeah if you're going to get them out there uh let's let's try a new method for it so i'm pretty convinced that i could i could if i had the Time issue a new podcast every day and not run out of things to talk about so the the first uh, couple of uh, shows I've got going are linked but they're firstly dark histories from the secret university it set me thinking that we need a new idea of a university that's more democratic that's more affordable that's more flexible and the dark histories I've specialized in a lot whether it's cannibalism corpse medicine vampires uh, lots of sort of tabooed stuff um, and fairies as well in fact and then there's a brighter side of things which will include a lot of animal stories a lot of ecology a lot of nature a lot of human adventure travel stories um, and also some fiction that i've written myself and started serializing that's lost leaves from the secret library and the secret library can be seen as within the cloisters of the of the secret university yes so if you want something that ranges from you know 15 minutes to perhaps an hour just to listen to something that will make you think that will make you sit up uh, or something that will just give you pleasure i'm going to a lot of poetry will be on there. Rupert Brooke is on there already. Then uh, it'd be great to get some responses to this. And the more listeners I get, the more I will do. So it will snowball madly, hopefully.
0: Yeah. And uh, I've been enjoying listening. So I, you know, I recommend, just like I've recommended your books Thank in you. the past, you know, for people to take a listen, have a read, you know, just come in and, and hear read what you have to say, because it's fascinating. Just like talking to you, hearing from you whenever you're on the podcast, it's always a real pleasure. So Thanks. thank you so much for your time. And great,
1: great, great pleasure this side as well. Thank you.
0: And I'll say goodbye to everybody listening. Thank you, everyone. Bye for now. Thank you for listening over this past year and coming and interacting with me on Patreon, the website, and social media. Happy holidays and New Year! I hope you come back and continue this journey with me. You can expect some phenomenal guests in the New Year, from author and investigator Richard Esther, Natalie Lawrence to talk about an incredible location, and what she and her company are doing, Chris Goodchild to talk about the Wookiee Hole Caves and the legend of the Wookiee Witch, Simon Entwistle with some powerful tales from beyond the grave, Caroline McKendrick from the Association for the Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena, and much more. 2023 is already looking pretty exciting. If you like this podcast, there's a number of things you can do. Come and join us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Spread the word about us with friends and family leave a review on our website or other podcast platforms. To support the podcast further, why not head on over to join us on Patreon, where you can sign up to gain a library of additional material and recordings, and in the process know you're helping the podcast continue to put out more content. On a final note, if you haven't read it already, then you can find my piece In Search of the Medieval in Volume 3 of The Feminine Macabre over on spookheats.com or via Amazon. Links to the book will also be in the episode description. Thank you everyone for your amazing support.